you have a Bible with you, we're going to start off in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So please turn there. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Now, this is one of those familiar verses in Scripture that sometimes get put, some, put on postcards and things like that. Um, it's not a verse about biblical rope making. It's actually talking about friendship. In Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9, we read, two are better than one. It's better to have a close companion than not to have one. And it's even better to have a couple of close friends. When it comes to friendship, two is better than one. And three close companions is optimal. We live our lives in networks and webs of relationships. We're sons, daughters, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers. Relationships are gifts, whether we like them or not always. Relationships are gifts. They're gifts of the other. And they're gifts that we're called to steward. With great, uh, with great gifts comes great responsibility. Um, one relationship that is equally important to these other relationships, uh, and a relationship that is a feature of an abundant life, and one that Scripture deals with, is friendship. It's now common to point out how Social media has been influential in redefining friendship. So the average Facebook user, for example, has 338 friends. Uh, in theory, you can pull out that device in your pocket and connect with this limitless number of friends. Yet another area where we think technology has solved the problem, solved the problem of loneliness. And yet, the U.S. Surgeon General has announced an epidemic of loneliness um, the United Kingdom has an official campaign sponsored by the government called the Campaign to End Loneliness. Upwards of 25 to 28% of people in the West, in this country, in the United Kingdom, at any given time report to feeling chronically lonely. So what is the antidote to loneliness? What is the cure, if you will, to loneliness? If we've identified it as this existential problem, how do we deal with it? Some Christians along the way have said, if you just take the marriage pill, then voila, you're free of loneliness. But this ignores two very crucial realities. Uh, first, and most importantly, it ignores Scripture. <laughs> Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, when it says that it was not good for Adam to be alone, it was not because Adam was some poor, lonely soul in this world and just needed someone to snuggle up with. It was not good for Adam to be alone because he needed a partner in mission. And this is the context, by the way, in which we're to understand marriage. Marriage is not about solving the existential problem of loneliness. But another reality, sadly, some people who are married feel just as lonely as they did apart from being married. So I don't think we can say that marriage solves the problem of loneliness. Now, of course, a good marriage, husband and wife will be best friends laboring together in mission. But not everyone gets married. Not everyone is called to marriage. So how, again, do we think about the problem of loneliness? Marriage wasn't in the cards for Jesus. But friendship was in the cards for Jesus. Jesus came, as we'll see, befriending others. And friendship is something that is available to us all, married or unmarried. And the Bible has much to say about friendship. So this morning, I want to address the gift of friendship how we're to think about friendship, how we're to approach friendship. 
We're going to do this from three angles. First, I want us to see the goodness of friendship. Second, I want us to see the transformation of friendship. And then I want us to consider the practice of friendship. So the goodness of friendship. Friendship, the Bible tells us, is a good thing. Companionship, this is a good thing. But it's a thing, it's a relationship, like many other relationships, that quickly gets confused. The writer, Andrew Sullivan, has said that the enemy of friendship in our day is what he calls the idolatry of eros. He said this is the belief that's prevalent in our culture that really the highest form of intimacy, true intimacy, and true connection can only be found at the end of the day in a romantic, erotic, and sexualized relationship. He says, Solomon says, we've lost a category for good, healthy models of friendship. Our reading from Ecclesiastes, I think, orients us to healthy, good friendship, a model for friendship. Ecclesiastes here extols the virtues of friendship. Two are better than one. Three is even better when it comes to friendship. Ecclesiastes, you may know, is clear-eyed about the fleetingness of life. The word Ecclesiastes used about life is it's vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It's full of toil. It's full of struggle. It's full of suffering that we can't explain. But yet, in this fleeting, vaporous life, there are blessings to enjoy, blessings to embrace. So you all know, eat, drink, and be merry, the preacher tells us in Ecclesiastes. These are things that we're to enjoy, eating, drinking, being merry, not in some resignation about the meaninglessness of the world, but we're to eat, drink, and be merry because these are gifts that God has given us in a world full of toil and struggle. And yet, and also there is another gift that's been given to us, companionship, friends. You need friends in life. So friends, the preacher tells us in Ecclesiastes 4, are a source of comfort in trials. Maybe you remember the story of Job in the Bible. He lost his family. He lost his property. It was one thing after another, one point of suffering after another. And he was a righteous man. He was a righteous man who suffered. But at least he had three good friends, right? Well, if you know the story, you know that's not true. His friends, so-called, poured salt into his wounds. His lack of true friends in this situation added to his suffering. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 4.1, And behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. This is tragic. It's bad to suffer, yes, but we all know that suffering is just a reality. It's a feature of life. It's worse to suffer without the comfort of friends. It's strange that just the mere presence of friends in a moment of suffering, in a moment of pain, in a season of struggle, it's strange how just the presence of friends can bring some sense of comfort. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't make the problem go away. But it does bring comfort and affliction. In suffering, so often we don't need the words of counsel of friends. Think about Job's friends. They were really good at that. They had lots to say. But often what we need is the presence of others who are close to us, friend, the presence of friends. If someone's going through a hard time, often I think our comfort comes by simply acknowledging it as a friend. Wow, that is really awful. I'm so sorry you're going through that. Acknowledging, affirming an injustice. 
I'm angry with you in this. I know this is so hard. Acknowledging the difficulty, acknowledging the struggle, the suffering. This is what a good friend does. Solomon makes another observation about friendship. So much of what we do in life is motivated out of envy and rivalry. Verse 4, Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vapor in a trying to shepherd the wind. This is the opposite of true friendship. Labor, work that isolates you from others and turns you against others is futile. The preacher here wonders, why, why work yourself to death if it only at the end of the day is just removing and isolating you from others? And why work if it's only to serve yourself? In verse 7, again, I saw the vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brothers, and yet there is no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling? And depriving myself of pleasure. This also is vapor and unhappy business. Two is better than one. Three is better. It's better to work with and labor for someone. It's better to serve someone else. It's better to labor with someone else than to simply serve yourself. I love how Martin Luther sums up this passage. He says, It is better to be in association with others and to enjoy things in common than to be a solitary miser who only cares about himself and grabs things for himself alone. In society of friendship, there's mutual help, common work, and common solace. See, this is the vision of friendship that Scripture's putting out there for us, where our work, our labor, even our goods, our physical goods, are shared with the companion of friends. There's also great support in close companions, we learn. A friend picks up a friend who falls, Two friends get the back of a brother who is attacked. Verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know, you might come after me and might be able to beat me up, but if Aubrey's right there by me, you're going to think twice because you're going to be really intimidated by my good friend Aubrey, right? Friends get each other's backs in literal senses, yes, but also in other senses as well. They're, they're with them in the battle. They're with them in the fight. So we see here the goodness of friendship. It brings comfort. It's a shared life. Our labor, our working together is not simply to be for ourselves. It's meant to be shared. And there's great pleasure in this, by the way. There's support. But we do also need friendship because friendship is a place of counsel. Solomon tells this story of an old foolish king in verse 13 who no longer knew how to take advice. You know, you've heard the expression, it's lonely at the top for those who have climbed the ladder. Well, that's true, and it's especially lonely if you refuse to take counsel from friends. If you have isolated yourself in such a way that you know the answer to everything, you've got it all figured out, and you cannot hear or take counsel from those who might contradict you. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. And counsel comes in the community of friends. Friends bring comfort. Friends are someone you can share your life and your goods with. Friends get your back. Friends give counsel even when it hurts. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Now, we should want friends like this. 
We should strive to be friends like this. So this is a bit about the goodness of friendship in Scripture. I want to turn now and consider the transformation of friendship. The Bible has a surprise when it comes to friendship. Uh, there are lots of classic definitions of friendship that speak to friends being equals who share common interests. This was, by the way, in the ancient world, a topic of great interest. So great writers like Aristotle, Cicero, Plutarch, they all wrote a lot about friendship because they understood that key and important to the good life was having friends. Aristotle thought about a good friend, a true friend, as being a mirror of the self. Friendship here is between equals. It's based on either loyalty, uh, pleasure, or some sort of need. And I think that there's actually a lot of truth to this. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, something else starts happening with friendship. He sort of redefines the category of friendship in a new way. Because he comes onto the scene, we see this all throughout the Gospels, befriending unequals. He came into this world equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit, his perfect friendship that he enjoyed in the companionship of the triune community. And he comes into the world and begins extending friendship to all sorts of characters. This was so much a feature of his ministry that the word got out about Jesus, that he was someone who was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And by the way, this wasn't a compliment. Jesus is constantly forming and engaging and encouraging groups of friends. So he calls 12 disciples to follow him. He forms a community there. And within that 12, there's a particular three that he gets a little closer to. He, Luke especially shows us several points along the way. There's this group of women who are following Jesus. He's befriending these groups of women. He makes close friends with Martha and Mary. And then, of course, his good friend, Lazarus. Lazarus, when he dies, Jesus weeps. He cries. He's sad that his friend has died. Jesus is forming a community of friends around himself. And Jesus tells us that this community he is forming around himself, this is, this is shocking, it was shocking in the first century, shocking us now. He says that this community is more important than husband, father, son, and daughter. Those are important relationships. But the community around Jesus that he's forming, this is the most important one. Mark chapter 3 speaks to this, if you want to read about this. In our gospel lesson, Jesus calls his disciples friends. Jesus is the true friend. No greater love has anyone than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. This little statement is the gospel. This is the good news of Christianity. Jesus is the friend who lays down his life for his friends. This is the greatest act of love our friend Jesus gives us. He lays down his life for us. He humbled himself. He condescended to us. We were far his inferior, and yet he befriends us. He loves us by dying for us. A good friend, Proverbs, tells us in a number of places, covers a brother's sins. Doesn't air them out. Cover, seeks to cover up a brother's sins. Jesus is the best friend who covers all of our sins once and for all by dying for our sins. 
If you're exploring the claims of Christianity, curious about what Christianity is all about, there's lots of ways we could talk about what Christianity is about. But one way to think about this is that Jesus is extending to you a divine hand of friendship, an offer of friendship. Now, this offer comes at a great cost. It came at a great cost to Jesus. It'll come at a great cost to you if you take that offer of friendship. But this is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's being a friend of Jesus. Friends, share secrets. Jesus tells the disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus here is disclosing his Father's plan to his friends, to his disciples. Jesus invites his friends into the divine council. He reveals the word to us. He is the word. In the Old Testament, we have glimpses of this. Abraham was called a friend of God. Moses spoke to the Lord face to face as a man speaks to a friend. But now we have something even richer because we have the word made flesh, Jesus, coming and extending this friendship. Jesus is our groom. Jesus is our king. Yes, he's our master, but he is also our friend. He's the friend that we don't deserve. He's the friend that transforms our friendship because he transforms friendship itself. But to be and to remain Jesus' friend means being loyal to him. This is not a friendship of equals. Jesus says in our gospel lesson, you are my friends if you do what I command. A fierce allegiance and loyalty to Jesus and his word maintains and strengthens our relationship with Jesus, our friend. We probably all have friends from the past, close friends at one time, and that just for whatever reason we've lost touch with. No harm, no foul. We've just sort of stopped checking in. They were good friends at once, and we've moved to a different place, and um, we've lost touch. To be a close friend of Jesus it's not about some warm, fuzzy feeling, although I like warm, fuzzy feelings. It's not about some mystical experience, although mystical experiences are good. It's about learning his word and obeying it. That's how you get to know Jesus more and more as a friend. Now, again, to be clear, Jesus sets the terms of friendship. He is a kingly friend. We are his subjects, and he invites us into his courts and calls us friends. He sets the terms of his friendship, and those terms are, here's my word to be my friend, to maintain this friendship. Learn it, keep it, obey it. Jesus comes, he transforms friendship. So I want to turn now to the practice of friendship. Friendship is good. Jesus comes as the friend, but now let's consider what this practice of friendship might look like. Jesus comes. He's a friend of sinners. He's creating a community around himself, a, a wild cast of characters called the church. This is us. This is what Jesus does. To be connected to Jesus, to be his friend, means you're connected to his community. You can't have Jesus without the church. You can't be a friend of Jesus without Jesus' friends. And the church should be a community of friendship. Now, you, you can't be good friends with 
every single person in a particular fellowship. But you should have the opportunity to grow in friendship with at least a few. Two is good, three's about about right. The church should be a place, though, for a particular type of friendship, what we might call a gospel friendship. In our epistle lesson, Paul, he writes to his friends. These are friends that have been formed through a particular context that is the work of the gospel, partnership in the gospel. Paul and the Philippians, they become friends because of their common interests, their common love and devotion to Jesus Christ. This is what holds them together. The church similarly should be a place of friends. Friends for whom the only reason they would have ever had met is because of the gospel. Later on in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says this to the church, to his friends, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, and I love this, striving side by side for the faith and the gospel. Side by side, shoulder to shoulder. Uh, there's some echoes of um, uh, athletic language here, competition, even military, kind of martial language. Shoulder to shoulder in the gospel. This is the posture of gospel friendship, standing side by side with others. Uh, C.S. Lewis when he wrote about friendship, he said, lovers normally are face-to-face, absorbed in one another. But friends are side-by-side, absorbed in a common interest. Gospel friendships have a common interest in Jesus Christ, obeying him and standing firm in him. So let me ask you, do you have a side-by-side gospel friend in this church? Do you have that kind of friendship? And if not, what might that look like? I think it might look like something that we saw from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. A friend who brings comfort. A friend with whom you share something, tangible or not. A friend with whom you receive support. A friend with you receive counsel from. True friendship, though, cannot be forced. This is the trick. It takes time. It's a struggle to have and to maintain friends. I think one of the reasons loneliness today is on such, a, such an acute problem, one of the reasons is that we're hypermobile. We, on the whole, we move around a lot. And we're commitment resistant. But staying put and making a commitment are requisite for friendship. Having friends requires this, actually. And it requires being patient. It requires being a bit vulnerable, opening up ourselves to this kind of commitment. You should work for incarnation to be a place where the soil is continually tilled in such a way that gospel friendships thrive and flourish. How? How can you do this? Well, by first, you being a gospel friend to others, extending friendship to others. You know, don't get all sad because you don't have any friends. There might be some real problems there. I don't want to diminish that. But you pray, you ask the Lord, you seek and work hard to be this sort of friend to someone else. Now imagine if everyone who commits to this church has at least one or two other men or women 
And they become spiritual friends, friends in the gospel, friends in Christ, friends with whom you can share joys, burdens, and sorrows, friends who will get your back, but also friends who will challenge you. Again, this sort of friendship can't be forced. It can't be programmed. It is by nature organic. But we can encourage a culture, not just of generic community, but a culture of spiritual friendship. But it all starts, it all starts by loving the friend who first loved us, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.